Welcome, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. And of course, we are moving into our fundraising weeks. So please think about that. Uh, CIUT 89.5 FM is the only alternative radio station left. And we're Buffalo to Barry and Kitchener to Coburg. So let's keep it up because boy, oh boy, do we need it these days. And of course, I love hearing from you. Thank you for getting back to me on many different platforms. Uh, you can, of course, also hear the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, etc., cetera, uh, and reach me on social media whenever you feel like it. So today, what, I mean, of course, what are we gonna talk about today, but the US election. Uh, by the time this airs on radio, it will definitely be decided, I think, I hope, on Monday, if you're listening to this on podcast, you're listening a little earlier, we may still be in the weeds. But uh, the two guests that I have on our Law and Disorder show that are going to unpack it all for us are David Slavik, who was a strategist for the Democratic Party at one point, uh, lawyer um, out of Washington, glad he's on this side of the border now. And Andre uh, Domiz, who's uh, uh, assistant editor at McLean's, uh, journalist, um, all sorts of things. And I just learned father of twins. So uh, welcome <laughs> to the Radical Reverend Show. Um, uh, David, let's start with you. Uh, this this must be very strange for you looking down at something that you used to be in the midst of. So what are, what are some thoughts coming out of all of this? I mean, for the record, as a sort of a comparativist in the legal sense, I, I've always looked down on the on the, the system in the states. Uh, I think that it, it the the idea of one person one vote there is is very vague. It doesn't really exist. Um, but being outside of it for the first election in a long time, and not for the first time in a long time, not working on a presidential campaign, um, I am finding myself. Um, more sanguine about the process and also um, a little more clear eyed about, about the absurdity of it all. Um, we're seeing um, uh, we had a democratic candidate who was largely put together through uh, in a golem like fashion, like a, like a Frankenstein's monster uh, through the, the various uh, lack of followings of a number of other candidates to beat our, our, uh, our preferred candidate, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders wasn't perfect, but he was probably the candidate we need in a time of pandemic and economic crisis. Um, but we we saw him fight uh, one of the the weakest uh, incumbent presidents in history. Um, he's like Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover if the if the Spanish flu happened twice. Um, and we're we're seeing uh, someone who intentionally seemed to hobble themselves across the across the entire election. I'm not sure if Trump wanted to be president, but I think he's not really comfortable with stepping down. Okay, uh, that's a good uh, first kick at that can. Uh, Andre, what are, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? I, my only thoughts are absolute condolences for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which is about to see just like a massive exit in droves. What what I've seen happening and I've seen people making the pivot on news, on social media, et cetera, is that some of the uh, the more progressive tacks that people were taking throughout the, the Democratic primary, um, people were pivoting away from that immediately. Because I think pe I think most people smart enough to understand uh, what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are about, uh, and also have seen that the uh, the Senate is most likely going to stay in Republican hands. Uh, there were no gains in the House. That the more conservative sort of center right aspects of Democratic Party governance are going to uh, ma maintain their hold for the next two years, if not four. Uh, the you know the uh, the midterms are going to be coming up in a couple of years. There has. I mean, not not in my lifetime, been a uh, a, a tremendous democratic gain during uh, any midterms. So what we're going to see happen now is is neoliberal austerity. We're going to see uh, you know possible cuts to social programs. Uh, the campaign promises that uh, Biden and, and and Harris made are going to evaporate in smoke uh, because they have to craft a policy uh, or raft of policies that are going to appease that are going to be able to uh, pass through the Senate. So unfortunately, I I I don't I don't see good things on the horizon. I, I don't see anything approaching universal health care. I don't even know that their promise to expand the Medicaid system is going to be honored. Uh, there's going to be nothing done about uh, police violence other than platitudes. Uh, the, uh, the question of uh, kids in cages and uh, migrations and customs enforcement, essentially rounding up people into concentration camps is not going to be addressed. Uh, drone bombing overseas and American imperialism not going to be addressed. So, uh, you know, although it's good to see Trump out of office, I, I don't see many reasons to celebrate. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and, 
and David, uh, Supreme Court, since this is law and disorder, um, maybe we, we need to talk about the ways in which the Supreme Court is going to play a role with all of us. The interesting thing about the Supreme Court as it stands today is that uh, there, there's really no hope of anything that steps outside of the bounds of the normal realm of imagination and political thinking in, in the United States that will be allowed. Uh, the ability of the Supreme Court to operate in, in the realm of imagination, uh, despite being despite being a, a court that says that they're they are originalists or they're you know textualists, uh, they're really stepping into to the fantasy land with some of their decisions as of late. We're seeing the Wisconsin case in which the um, the uh, ne'er do well uh, prep college prep boy uh, Brett Kavanaugh talks about the fact that state courts cannot uh, you know put a check on uh, state legislatures, which is against basically 200 years of constitutional history. What they've proven with those kind of uh, early cases on with this this uh, majority court is that they're willing to do anything to stop any sort of progress. Joe Biden is not likely to do much that is uh, out on the limb even though we are facing uh, a COVID crisis, an economic crisis, and a crisis of confidence in the, in the, in the state. He has an opportunity uh, that is very rare where he can actually push for very uh, aggressively for things, but he's not going to do that. But even those mild programs or mild gains that states try to implement, and even, even Congress tries to implement through the leadership of Joe Biden, will be pushed back at, in epic proportions. That'll be used as a, a preemptive excuse for not doing much. And I think Andre is right about that. Um, but I do think that things like the freedom of choice uh, through Roe v. Wade, uh, but not exactly through re uh, repealing Roe v. Wade will be under attack. I think you're going to see um, the, the rights of unions be under attack. I think you're going to see all those types of things be under attack. And I do not think that Joe Biden is going to be a strong advocate uh, pushing back on those things through executive orders or uh, through other means. So I think you're going to see a Supreme Court run the country in a way that we haven't seen in ages. Now, uh, he has promised to make moves on the LGBTQ front. Um, and I just know from from Twitter followers that there's a whole lot of fear. I mean, there's a lot of fear either way, quite frankly, um, now that it looks like Biden is, is going to win this thing. Um, there's still a lot of fear because Proud Boys have been, you know, issuing, you know, uh, <laughs> threats and saying they're going to start killing people in the streets. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but I, I see a lot of that. I see a lot of people kind of just staying home and fear, um, you know, people uh, of color, Indigenous, uh, blacks and queer folks. So um, do you think there's going to be, I mean, this has got to be some good news on that front at all, David? No, yes, but. I, I think that Joe Biden will, um, you know, seek to uh, help encourage the Department of Education to uh, implement policies that allow for uh, trans kids to uh, have a better life in their school. I think that Joe Biden will work around the edges as far as college and college and inclusion and, and things like that. I think that there are a lot of opportunities where, you know, you know, the, the president is, you know, as much as he's the leader of, of the country, he's also a, sort of a tastemaker as far as culture as well. And in, in some ways, and in, in my, my, uh, my friend who's passed, Michael Brooks, used to say this, that, that the president does set a tone for, you know, a cultural milieu. And it, even though even they don't, may not operate in that way, when I think Obama didn't always operate in that way, he did set a tone that was important. And I think that people, there will be positive impacts on the LBGTQA 2S community that uh, will flow down, sort of downstream of culture in that way. Um, I'm hoping that more is done for people, but I do fear on the state level, given the Supreme Court that we have, that there will be uh, still constant attacks on, on sort of identity, life and uh, livelihood of those people. Yeah. Andre, do you want to, could you weigh in on that too, um, the Supreme Court and um, uh, those that are marginalized already? Um, maybe there's some light for them or what? <laughs> under, a, under a Supreme Court that has six conservative justices and Joe Biden has, uh, you know, has not made any firm commitment either way about whether the uh, the court can be expanded. I, I, I don't know. I, I know that, like, my positions often seem rather nihilist, but I, I, I kind of see the Proud Boys as symptomatic of, like, the the dis 
function that exists between the structure of American politics and electoralism and what America promises. So there's this idea that like, as long as you uphold, you render the social contract in America, you can achieve whatever you want. That's, that's like the American dream that, you know, as long as you're willing to work hard, as long as you're willing to, uh, to educate yourself, <clears throat> then, you know, you, you too can have, you know, the, the house and the white picket fence and the dog and all that, but the reality, and this has been a reality, uh, it's slowly manifesting since the 1980s is that it doesn't look like that with, with the amount of, uh, you know, out, outsourcing of labor, uh, with the essential like collapse of the, uh, us industrial economy, uh, with the fact that, you know, millennials, like young millennials, uh, since they've graduated university have just seen crisis after crisis. That's like put the prospects of anything remotely approaching like gainful and stable employment farther and farther out of reach and being able to be self-sustaining. Like you have, you know, 35 and 40 year olds living with their parents and uh, the, you know, Supreme court decisions on, for example, like campaign finance reform, Supreme court decisions on, uh, on, on the gutting of the voter rights act. Like there's just, there's nothing really on the horizon that holds any promise that there's going to be a return to a time where America seemed just or fair, and I think the the the, the Proud Boys and and you know the uh, the the white supremacist violence that's erupted, not just over the last four years. I mean, a lot a lot of this was happening even during the Obama administration. I think what happens is that when people see that their um, material conditions don't improve, one of two things can happen: they can either fall into uh, class consciousness or nationalism, and because the Democratic Party's uh, cent like their central thesis, like their their essential platform, is to obscure and obfuscate class politics because the Democrats are for the most part beholden to their donor class. So if you make the conversation about culture, if you make the conversation about race and racism, but you don't do anything to ameliorate people's material interests. And all you want to do is talk about gender and race and culture, et cetera. Not that these aren't good things to talk about, but when you're not matching it with any substantive policy that's going to ameliorate the, the conditions of people that are marginalized, then all you, you get points for simply talking about and being seen to be discussing these things. So if you aren't ameliorating the conditions of, of poor people, especially poor white people, uh, and all you see is, is a political party that's committed to talking about racism, but will not uh, support policy that helps to change your condition, even of those people who, who, who you see to be at the effect of the worst, uh, the worst aspects of racism, then it stifles the ability to become class conscious. And for a lot of younger and disaffected white people, what it metastasizes into is nationalism. And this is only not like essentially what's just happened is that America has elected like the Vermont Republic, you know, and I, I just I I don't see it going in good directions because there are no substantive policy answers that the up incoming Biden administration has for these questions of the intersection between uh, poverty and uh whether it's racial or gender, but other forms of marginalization. Not only is there no class analysis, they deliberately try to obscure class analysis. I think we've seen that in the last few days that the, as we've seen a Biden uh, election, you know, election become more sure, we've seen those types of people who speak on behalf of certain communities. And we see those people who, who are, are, are meant to be sort of progressive sheep, uh, sheepdogs for the left uh, really fall in line in a way that, that, you know, uh, to go back to the old internet hippo tweet, terminally online, you know, this is a, about a centrist rally and everyone's chanting better things can't happen. And I think that what we're seeing, you look at the Proposition 22 in California, where they actually repealed one of the few positive workers' rights legislations that they've happened in a long time in the state level, where they were going to give employee status to Uber Lyft employees. And who was at the head of that? Kamala Harris's sister? or a cousin or was her niece niece and her brother-in-law yeah. and yeah. you're going to see in many ways in this Biden administration some of the worst aspects of both parties come together and hold hands because you're going to see Wall Street capital get what they want and you're going to see Silicon Valley get what they want and I, I I'm very concerned that uh when I hear people like Rahm Emanuel former chief of staff for for uh for Obama and um uh, 
terrible mayor from from Chicago who who helped cover up killing of, of black and brown people um, by police uh, come out and talk about how they're going to have people learn to code uh, in rural areas in, in the country. And that's the plan. I just I think that that kind of speech, that kind of sort of derogatory sort of talking down to people is going to metastasize in a way that Trumpism is going to look moderate. Wow. Okay. Uh, you are listening to the Radical Reverend here, and you're hearing Radical, and I'm the Reverend uh, Sherry DeNovo, so welcome to the show. It's also our fundraising week, so do give generously um, online, of course. Uh, there are buttons to push. Uh, do that, because it keeps discussions like this on the air, and they're rare. We're on our Law and Disorder panel today. We have David Slavic and Andre uh, Demiz, uh, both astute um, legally, and we're talking, of course, about the U.S. election. What, what else is anybody talking about these days? And we'll talk about that fact, too. Why aren't we talking about other things in a minute, too, on the show? Um, but, but first, um, I, I want to um, deal, uh, Andre, you raised a class, uh, class analysis and class consciousness and, and how, you know, sort of poor whites who used to have a good union job, maybe, and then that's been squashed. Um, I heard an interview with Noam Chomsky recently uh, where he, uh, and he was encouraging people to vote, just so you know. Um, but he said, um, you know, even Hitler, he compared Trump to Hitler, he said even Hitler did more for the working class than Trump has done. So this is a working class that um, has not, you know, they, they've stepped in line um, hoping to see something different on the right. I'm just talking about people on the right right now, um, and they haven't. Uh, in fact, everything's worse, all the economic markers are, are worse for them. <laughs> um, so, 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 so now, how do you, like, how, like, I, you know, you see these people in the streets and just eat there and here, and I don't wanna leave Canada out of it. Like, we're not so much better. I mean, see a thousand anti-maskers in the street and talk to them and you get a sense that that kind of thinking is, is creeping across the border, anti-science, um, stupid religious, um, on and on, um, and willing to do anything a tyrant tells you to do. How do we start to talk to a working class that, that has been beaten down and doesn't, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll go back to the days when, you know, I was um, uh, a young Trotskyist and, you know, there were like 200 of us across Canada. Oh, no, not you too. Yeah, yeah. And we were trying to foment a revolution. It was a Vietnam War. I'm that generation. And guess what? There's still 200 Trotskyists across Canada and there's still more wars. And uh, we, so talk to me, Andre. Talk to me. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, first of all, I, I should probably correct myself. A, a while ago, I said uh, uh, Wehrmacht. I, I meant Weimar Republic. I'm not even sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where, where yeah. No, I, I knew what you yeah, meant. Weimar Republic, yeah. yeah. But uh, um, the, uh, oh my God, where do we even begin with this? What I've already seen um, with uh, uh, people who are celebrating the uh, the Biden win is uh, the, uh, the idea that things can go back to normal. Um, and normal was never a good thing you know during during the obama administration there was the the broadest extension of the u.s military apparatus uh that had i mean granted you know uh, the the bush administration set the stage for this but the broadest uh, expansion of the u.s military apparatus in africa that had ever happened you know and uh the the idea that um you know, politics in the United States are the business of the United States is is absolute bunk because it affects everybody else. It may not affect Canada as much because we are sort of like uh, co-conspirators in the imperialist project. But it's almost to say that, you know, there, there shouldn't be any care about what happens in the global south. And to your point about, you know, what do we do? I think the only the only real answer to it, and and I say this is you know someone that's just like I'm I'm just a straight up communist like not even like <laughs> even front, um, is that we we have to commit ourselves to an internationalist project. You know, uh, I, while I may not be a, a Trotskyist myself, I, I do, um, I do believe that there there is no such thing as as revolution in one country. You know, the uh, the, the revolutionary politics that we need to carry are are international in scope. And we, we do have, you know, one giant global hegemon that is about to forgive itself for all of its crimes against the global south. So the, the only, I think, answer for this right now is to build a, a working class coalition that's solidly rooted in theory, but one that also, and, and this is a problem that um, you saw uh, Bernie supporters experiencing, 
is that you have to build a coalition that takes into account forms of black and indigenous and Indian and Asian and other, or other forms of socialist slash Marxist resistance. And I, I say I say socialist slash Marxist because not necessarily all, all you know uh, nations that uh, revolted against the imperialist order were Marxist in nature. I.e., uh, you know uh, Patrice Lumumba's uh, Congo. You know Patrice Lumumba was not a Marxist, but he he was in many aspects a socialist. I think that building an internationalist project is absolutely necessary, and I think that for a lot of white people on the left, there has to be a better education and understanding of. Uh, forms of resistance. I think a really good um, beginning for this is uh, Jay Sakai's Settlers. Uh, to, to read that book and understand that you can't build a socialist project in the heart of empire without understanding how it is that uh, America, Canada, and other Western countries have essentially built themselves up upon the exploitation of, of the global South. Until you, you come to reckoning with that fact and until you begin to understand the theories of uh, black theorists, uh, indigenous theorists, etc. Then we can't really build this uh, this broad working class and internationalist coalition. I think that's the place to start. Okay, I, I was thinking as you were speaking about Vijay Prashad's work and others. Yeah. I, oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm going to go back to you, David. Now uh, we're talking, of course, about the U.S. election, its law and disorder panel. Um, let's get. I, I want to get into the weeds a little bit because one of the things that uh, we in Canada notice, not that you know we can hold ourselves up on, you know, too much, but um, certainly having been in political life myself and you know have gone through a lot of elections here, um, it just seems so bizarre. Just the even forum of the election. So you have huge lineups. You have people driving hundreds of miles. You have voter suppression of people in the, you know that got you know some sort of mild prison records. You you disenfranchise you know huge uh, portions of the population. Um, and then you've got the electoral college. So I just could you talk a little bit about just how not democratic that is. And when I put this on Twitter, by the way, the pushback I got from Americans was, was quite extreme. Um, we dealt with it, but but I mean, yeah, I mean, from a Canadian, and now the count, I have to say the count, that we're, we're like a week in, you know, almost, and we're still counting. I, I, this was not foreseen, I, nobody thought of this. Um, I, I mean, I, one, one of the funny things, I'll just mention this on, on Twitter, was that people were sending Elections Canada, like love notes and things, and saying, you know, we think you're wonderful, these are just bureaucrats, right? Civil servants who nobody even ever notices, and all of a sudden, you know, they're seen as heroes, you know, by comparison. So let's talk about the process, David. Talk about the process down there. I think one of the things that people in Canada in particular would not understand is that is that elections can go, actually be determined how they're run and and the, the format they're run and who is able to vote where and all those types of things are determined at the state and local level. There is no elections USA. Now, I it's interesting because I, I so distrust the U.S. government that I don't know if an Elections USA would work like Elections Canada works. I mean, that alone is, is concerning. Um, the fact that we have the Electoral College the way we do and, and there isn't really one person, one vote is also very concerning. Um, you know, at least in a parliamentary system, you, you know that if you're voting for the liberal, um, you know, a vote for the liberal is a vote for Justin Trudeau in, in some way. You know, you get that you, you, you do it and you operate from that from that understanding. Um those uh, districts are pretty clearly drawn. Some of them are, are massive and, and hard to say are representative. I mean, when you go to none of it, there's one member, um, you know, and that's a, it's a very big province. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but one thing that people don't get is that because of this sort of morass of laws and morass of ballot access, um, every state has different ballot access rules. Uh, third party being a third party is almost impossible to, to operate from in the United States. Um, a little easier in the presidential election than at state and local elections. Um, you have situations where funding models are very different. In Pennsylvania, there's no limit on individual contributions or no limit on corporate spending. Um, you know, that's pretty unbelievable. Uh, that makes the federal system look like, look modest. And you have the money involved and, you know, with, with things like Citizens United and, and other sort of uh, Supreme Court decisions, you have a lot of money involved. You have a system that atomizes people. And you have a system that disenfranchises people on, on the regular. Um, I think the 
rebranding of the United States as some sort of other type of country rather than sort of the democratic beacon on the hill would actually be better for the citizens because I think that that cognitive dissonance that they they feel every day is actually giving them ulcers and, and diseases in, in, in their in their mind. It's almost impossible to be an American and still feel confident in the way things are doing and uh, going and and you could see how when people are so disenfranchised from from politics and becoming apolitical in many ways, uh, except for in ways that that feel reactionary, you're going to see or or are identitarian in in very discreet ways. You know, down to what kind of coffee you drink. Um, you're going to see a, a country further crumble. So I think that some of the initiatives at the state level where they're trying to redistrict, where they're trying to make sure that these things work in a better way are good, but I, I think it's, it's, it's too late. Yeah, um, just, just, just to uh, say one of the pushbacks I got, I mean, not from one person, but from several south of the border were say, said straight out, you know, we're not a democracy, we're proudly a republic. <laughs> <laughs> that's that simple statement and I thought wow okay so so maybe the beacon on the hill they're not uh, they're not even trying to do that anymore they don't even care anymore um there's a certain feeling there uh but okay so now we I heard from Andre though some hope you know a building a, a, a some sort of worker-based international presence um, that can begin to counter, can, can, I mean, yes, I mean, we all agree capitalism is a problem, um, no doubt, and we can't sustain a, a, you know, climate, among other things, we can't sustain a planet uh, unless something dramatic happens, and it should happen relatively soon. So um, on, on from coming from you, David, what, what do you see as, as a way forward here? Well, I, one of the things that I, I see as a way forward, I think, like, you know, and a less maybe a less. Um, I I think sort of a, a less. A, not a, I I I think Andre is right. I mean, I think there is there does need to be an internationalist project. I'm I'm thinking in an incremental way, just because I I don't know where to start. Um, I think taking lessons from you know Fudora here and you know the the Foodsters United here and and pushing for those similar kinds of policies in the states is a good start. Um, these kind of international sort of projects probably need to start at the union level uh, where you can use unions to to sort of push for standardized um, sort of ways of operating with with international conglomerates. Um, I think that the actions against international conglomerates really do need to be unified because uh, Amazon is is operating as its own government. Um, you know, places like this are, are operating outside of sort of the understanding of what we understand about the state. And um because of that, we, we do need international action in a way. Um, I talked to some friends who work in the labor movement in the States a lot. And, you know, right now in, in Newfoundland, where I'm currently sitting, there's, there has been a, a grocery store, the, the uh, workers union, the UFCW, uh, on strike for about four months. Uh, shutting down the biggest grocery chain in the province. And there's not a you know, Newfoundland is very rural. There are not a lot of places to shop, but support for that union is still strong. Um, and this is in a time when in, during the pandemic, the uh, Dominion Foods Company or, or the Loblaws, as people know it, outside of, of Newfoundland, has done rather well. So they have the money to do it. And they, they do. They, so I think that, um, you know, people in the states need to be learning from these types of things. People in unions need to be visiting other places when they can. Uh, not that you can visit Newfoundland even as a Canadian. But, you know, connecting those movements across borders is going to be a, a vital uh, sort of first step in creating a more international movement towards solidarity and, and, and improvement of lives. Yeah, so Andre, to get back to you, can't you, I, I guess my question is, can't you do both and? I mean, I um, uh, always consider myself a socialist, um, think absolutely capitalism is the problem, um, still ran for office, got some stuff done um, under the current system. Uh, um, and to, to David's points about incrementalism, I mean, um, some of the incrementalism that can get done actually saves people's lives. Um, uh, so, sure. you know, especially in the human rights and civil rights area. Um, so uh, can we do both? Um, can we both work for, you know, internationalism and, and you know, <laughs> the only kind of government that's going to possibly save our planet, which is going to be one that's planned. Um, and also, um, and also, you know, be part of the political process as it's structured. Uh, for example, vote for Biden to get rid of Trump and then work as, you know, uh, the squad has said to 
change Biden to get some stuff done. What do you say? <laughs> uh, this idea that uh, anything is going to be done to hold Biden, quote unquote, accountable, that was lost when he was nominated. Uh, this this idea that uh, politicians should be held accountable after they're elected, like after you give them the thing that they want, they will then listen to your interests has has always been bunk. And I think that it's it should be apparent, for example, with the, the Trudeau administration that or the Trudeau government that uh, rewarding parties and politicians that say that they're going to help people and then don't do that has never worked out uh, during the obama administration they you know obama very aggressively pivoted away from talking about anything to do with anything black unless it was to chide black people for not pulling up their pants not getting up to the voter booth black fathers not participating in their children's lives even though it turns out they are the most involved in children's lives etc 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 uh, and the idea that he was actually going to be able to do anything for Black America, I think, uh, after the uh, 2008 to 2012 administration, should, like it was just an absolute joke. I think that the, uh, you know, incrementalism does have its merits. But at the same time, I, I think we've also seen between Canada, the US and the UK, that entry as politics are dead. Uh, and, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm speaking to a trot here, aren't I? <laughs> hey, I'm speaking to a Stalinist, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying that uh, it was wasn't it the trots that came up with the idea of entryism into uh, into bourgeois parties, but uh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna stop throwing shade. Uh, yeah, no, there's no, no. there's yeah, there's absolutely. this idea that there's this idea that uh, you know uh, socialists and and social democrats, people on the left, are are going to be able to commandeer um, bourgeois political parties and change their makeup by getting involved at the whether it's at the activist level if it's at the administrator level or if it's running as, as politicians within the party and I, I think that you know the uh the shellacking that bernie sanders uh faced during the u.s primary where essentially you know his entire opposition coalesced against him once barack obama picked up the phone and said hey listen we need to get behind joe biden or we are in serious danger here or what's continuing to happen to uh, to Jeremy Corbyn, that essentially his, his own party sabotaged him, deliberately sabotaged him, threw him overboard. And then when he spoke up about it, they suspended him. And now they're they're run by somebody from the, the House of Freaking Lords. You know, the, the idea that uh, in Canada, you know, we can uh, create an entry as project, whether it's to commandeer the NDP or to possibly work with or alongside the liberals, I'm sorry, but the last, I would say, eight years of uh, global politics has shown or should be able to show that that simply doesn't work. Now, there there might be something to be said for like down ballot races. Uh, there might be something to be said for people running as Democrats at like the municipal level, possibly even the state level, possibly. But I but what about AOC? Of, what about like that whole move that seemed impossible at one point? Even Bernie AOC, was calling himself a socialist AOC, and being part of the Democratic. Bernie's party. Bernie's not a socialist, and AOC is not a socialist. AOC flirts with socialist ideas, uh, but has come out and called herself a capital or she said that it is possible to be a socialist uh, who believes in capitalism is what is what she said to uh to to chuck todd uh, bernie sanders is a somewhere between a social democrat and a democratic socialist he doesn't really come out on either side of it but you can you can you can see these ticks you can see these sort of like i will call myself a socialist but not actually commit to socialism ticks when you hear him say things like well america practiced socialism for the rich which is absolute bunk that is simply the way that capitalism works but to, to the the point i was trying to get to um you know, entryism didn't work with the uh, the Green Party either. You know, D D Dimitri Lascaris uh, ran for leadership, came very close to winning, but uh, was also ultimately trounced uh, by somebody who is both a uh, capitalist and a Zionist, essentially a, a Bictorist. You know, so I think all of this is pointing to the necessity for an actual socialist party, like an actual socialist movement uh, to uh, to build third parties in countries like Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. Um, this idea that we're going to be able to commandeer these parties, I think by now, like it's it's been ultimately debunked. And without socialist and labor-based parties, we're never going to get any going to get anywhere politically. Okay, we're talk you're talking uh, uh, basically um, uh, to uh, to Law and Disorder here on the Law and Disorder panel. Um, Sherry Genovo, your host uh, on the Radical Reverend Show, and 
we are having it out. Uh, we're doing we're doing some moving and shaking here today, and it's great to to hear these views. Which, by the way, you're not going to hear on other radio stations. Uh, the last alternative radio station left in Toronto, so do uh, give generously. David Entryism versus um, building a third, you know, yet a fourth party or a fifth party or sixth party in Canada, and um, and certainly a third party in the states. Possible? So- what? This is this is the this is a question that this is actually a discussion I, I've had with Andrea about a hundred times. I think. I, hey, did, did you did you did you vote Gloria Lariva, David? Did <laughs> no, you I vote did PSL? Not. No, I did not. No, I uh, yeah, I you know it's it's interesting because. Um, I come out of democratic politics and I think, you know, I think Andre understands this as well. You know, he has his own uh, political background and in, in working within the party system. Um, some of the most interesting work I've done has been within sort of the around the edges of democratic politics, where we were pushing um, people on policies and ideas that we could, we thought that we could, uh, you know, work within a system and, and make things happen. Um, I think that, that is possible to a certain extent. I am concerned that when I when I saw the consolidation around Joe Biden, a candidate that had really no popular support in the primary, was uh, ailing uh, in his his faculties and was running a campaign that was very poor. That's when I became a little more skeptical of the project. To be honest, I think at the state and the local level, I think that's it's really it's really critical. I think having good congressmen in office is, is important. Um, I think the barriers created, um, and this may be some, why it needs to start at the state and local level, uh, the barriers created to entry for third parties in the States is very, very, very high. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the sort of scary things about the whole process is that um, you're seeing a lot of groups that are sort of outside the democratic party become uh, sort of subsumed into the, the democratic blob, like DSA and, and organizations like that, that, that have good intentions and, and are well-meaning and, and in many ways operate like parties um, becoming, you know, sort of, uh, how can I say, uh, harm reductionists. And I think that one of the things that the left has to do, if they want to operate within that system, has to be willing to withhold their votes or withhold their support or to take it on the chin occasionally if they do want to operate in that system. I I don't think it's totally impossible, but I think it's outside chance in a way that, um, you know, like I still play the scratch ups once in a while. Um, I don't win very often. Well, I would I, I, I would say that there's a there's a big difference um, between uh, the situation in the states and Canada in the sense that there is no Labour Party in the states. Um, the one the one good thing you can say, even the NDP at its worst, um, is a, a union based party has unions and rank and file members there, or at least the progressive elements of them. I mean, so does the Conservative Party have some unions, um, but uh, that, that that's the backbone there. So that the idea here, it seems to me, would be you work through that, um, that lever because you can and push it to the left. Whereas in the States, I would absolutely agree with Andre and say there you need a, a new party. I mean, you, you can't work within. And I would hope that the AOCs and the squads and the Bernies finally get that message and break off, um, especially if what uh, you're both saying comes to pass and that we don't get much out of this. Um, uh, and, then, uh, and then I think, I mean, there's a, there's a huge, I mean, the voter turnout was immense uh, to get rid of the, you know, the, the tyrant, but um, I think there'd be a huge uh, shift too if there was a, another alternative um, in the States. I mean, certainly that was seemed viable, but um, I don't know, either like Andre, maybe weigh in, is it even, is it possible? It seems like such a dream right now, um, looking at south of the border. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that uh, uh, because there have been, I guess it's more, much more difficult in the United States, uh, but because there have been so many uh, obstacles to like uh, electoral participation uh, for anybody that's not one of the other the major two parties, it seems like an impossibility. And so there's the, there's just this like this repeated, uh, and this has been happening since like the 1930s. Uh, that uh, you know, th- there's nothing but a repeated attempt uh, to either you know hijack a party or to inject uh, certain forms of politics into a party that is fundamentally um, hostile to them. I, I, I then again, you know, I'm I'm also not one that's like really heavy on electoral politics. I think that it it does have its place and serve a purpose. But that can't be the end of the conversation. I think that um, 
for people that have been marching in the streets literally for months, I mean, we've, we've seen protests happening since what, like March, April. I, I think that uh, there, there comes a point where we have to ask, okay, so what if, you know, uh, the, the protest movement is going to be co-opted into electoralism and electoralism bears no fruits, then what happens next? And I think the answer to that is labor organizing, which is also made difficult by the fact that so many of us are, are now uh, either A, uh, working from home, or B, working in incredibly precarious industries that uh, makes it difficult to organize. You, as David mentioned, you just saw Prop 22 passed in California. And because our, our means of employment now uh, make it more difficult to organize or to coalesce, uh, that companies can simply uh, flout labor rules with no, uh, no punishment or no ramifications whatsoever. I, I guess all it's gonna come down to is simply local organizing at home. And that's kind of where everything started to begin with, where, where, you know, whether it's organizing on college campuses, whether it's organizing in neighborhoods, i.e. in the form of mutual aid. But because labor organizing and political organizing have effectively been cut off of, as avenues of developing political power, then what else can you do besides organize where you live? Yeah, David, do you want to weigh in on that? So I think I think that is that is true. I, I mean, I, I I've seen um, some amazing work around sort of solidarity, creating of solidarity, and sort of recreating sort of the imagination. I think that because we're all stuck terminally online in many ways because of COVID, um, it's seeing people. And I want to I want to pat Andre Demise on the back for, for this is that really like taking some of the the materialist arguments about what needs to be done to improve the lot of everyone and and then marrying it with you know real analysis of what uh you know sort of race and identity means for people um if you don't follow Andre online uh, you, you simply much must um we'll give your our twitter handles later in in the show but um some of the brave takes that he's been taking lately, sort of taking on some of the intelligentsia across across all sort of political parties and orientations, is where he's saying, you know, if we do want to improve a lot of everyone, we have to actually have real conversations about what we're doing and how we're talking about it. Um, these things online are becoming less like uh, sort of. Uh, surreal and, and less less imaginary and more real because we are doing our work online in many ways. Uh, we're operating through you know jobs that are mediated by apps. We're being surveilled constantly by corporations. Um, the online world is the real world again now. Um, so you can actually sort of build solidarity through online networks, but you have to remember that you know these community building exercises also start in your home community. Um, being in Newfoundland, you can see that happen here. It's 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 almost uh, it's almost quaint in a way that the way that the neighbors stick together because you know supply chains don't operate in the same way. We've are you know Newfoundland has already you know sort of understood what it's like to be on the edge of empire and to be you know on the periphery, so they operate differently here. So when we were um, under lockdown for um, coming up to the province, you know every day a neighbor would bring us some fish, right? That just simply wouldn't happen in, in, in more urban areas or, or in even suburbs. And I think that people need to, to re remember that their neighbors are their neighbors again. And I think that's one of the most powerful ways that, that we can actually break down the system. That, on that lovely positive note, let's just swing it. We only have about 10 minutes left. Back to Canada, because other other places do exist other than the United States and the world. <laughs> so let's talk about them. And, let, and we just had an Ontario budget come down. Um, uh, with the Ford government. Uh, we, by the way, uh, talk about COVID, have over a thousand cases a day right now. New cases, we have, we're, we're trending at about 11 deaths a day. Um, a lot of those, of course, are in long-term care. Um, uh, but I mean, everybody's in lockdown here with, uh, or should be with good reason, except uh, the Ford government wants to open things up because um, that's businesses there is their baby. So um, what about this budget? And what about it, what's happening right here at home? Um, uh, Andre, you wanna start in on that? Uh, and, and you know, again, the uprising here, we just saw um, Coco uh, say her name, um, black trans woman killed in police custody. We don't know how, mm -hmm. uh, sure she died. I should say, correct myself, she died in police custody. We don't know how, nobody's talking about it, the usual, um, 
in in the in the midst of really you know as you said thousands in the streets for many months um, and yet this happens and and we can't here even defund the police 10 to 15 percent city council voted it down so under started what about at home what's oh, and I should also we should also mention that you know some of the uh, what I actually got a call from a from a Toronto city councilor uh, who wanted to know, you know, how, how best to position the idea of defunding police. Uh, and this was not long after the, uh, the, uh, the, the marches for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor began. And I, I gave them some information or some advice as to how to best position the possibility of defunding police. One of which is to begin with, well, everything is on the table, you know, nothing is off the table here. And that was also one of the councillors who voted against defunding police because uh, I guess John Tory put the fear of God into, into a lot of these councillors. I'm not exactly sure what it, what kind of like hold or sway he has over city council. I'm not sure why these people were afraid of him. But even the people that, you know, say that they support the possibility of police reform when faced with any kind of political pressure will buckle uh, in, in, in front of uh, other perceived more powerful councillors and, and the mayor himself. And I think that's that's one of the key problems that we face in, in Toronto and, and broadly in Ontario uh, is that this idea of the police as a protective force rather than an occupying force, that the police have existed for the, you know, for, for citizen safety and not as a tool for keeping people in line and making sure certain populations stay in check and know their place. That, that is a, a fundamental problem, I think, in, you know, municipal and provincial electoral politics that we haven't come to grips with what function the police serve. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to have that difficult conversation with themselves or other people because they know fundamentally what the police are here to do, but admitting it to themselves would implicate themselves in systemic racism, which is that the police are here to keep white people safe from black and brown and red hordes is ultimately what it set out to do. You know, Canada is a country that, you know, indigenous people had to get a pass to step off the reservation and on the property claimed by white people. That impulse hasn't left the Canadian psyche. So regardless of the fact that a, a, a trans woman who for no reason that I can discern anyway, was taken into police custody, I believe it was on a break and enter call. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no break and enter had taken place, but a, a, a black trans woman was taken into custody regardless and somehow dies under, die, uh, dies in, in police custody. Part of the reason I, don't, I think that that's not being talked about is because I think deep down, a lot of people know that that's what the police are there to do. Uh, a black trans woman to many of these people is completely disposable to their broader political project of keeping everything safe and keeping everything status quo. They don't want justice. What they want is order. And yeah, I, I just, I'm at, I'm, I'm at a point now where I've almost completely lost faith in people's ability to change. And, you know, given that we saw a massive outrage when Whole Foods uh, told employees that they couldn't wear the poppy on Remembrance Day. And immediately, you see the uh, the provincial and, and federal government, every side of the aisle, jumping into action to condemn this action. And I, I guess now the Ontario government wants to draft legislature to make sure that employees can wear the poppy at work. Meanwhile, there are people in, 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 in long-term care facilities that are just, that are dying in droves because of this, this ghoulish and privatized network led by, you know, uh, former uh, 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 Ontario uh, PC party apparatchiks, you know, and, and nothing's been done to hold these, uh, these homes accountable or draft legislation. But this idea of needing a, a immediate and direct action to further reinforce compelled speech around Remembrance Day, it, it's, it, it makes me lose faith in the process. And I, I really don't know how to fix that. I just want to say, uh, yeah, and, and so listeners at home will probably know where you're listening to the Law and Disorder uh, show with David Slavic and uh, Andre uh, Jomiz. 
to regulars um, talking about, of course, the U.S. election, but now Canadian uh, stuff. Um, that Whole Foods is ordered by Amazon. Some some folk don't really realize that. So. Um, yeah. My my immediate reaction is, <laughs> why don't they jump into action about taxing, um, you know, Jeff and Amazon and you know, <laughs> looking after the workers there? Uh, I mean, this is a multinational organization. The, the craziness if they're going to, you know, jump into action on anything. Uh, David, uh, Ontario politics, Ontario situation. Um, what say you? Um, it's really interesting to see um, Ontario politics jump. All politicians of all strikes uh, jump behind this uh, this poppy business because I mean, one, I come from a country it's it's all patriotism all day. The poppy is kind of a, a vestige of that sort of martial patriotism in in Canada and, and you know the Commonwealth. Uh, so it's always interesting to see sort of the how how people are really tied to that in a sort of visceral way. Um, but it's also interesting because no one spoke up when uh, Whole Foods employees couldn't wear Black Lives Matter stuff. And no one spoke up um, when Whole Foods employees couldn't unionize, you know, and these are the things that actually are going to materially affect people. The fact is that we know that Amazon is a villain. You know, they they fired a, a black organizer in the, their um, their uh, warehouses uh, for violating covid rules because he was standing too close to people while talking about organizing. We're seeing these sorts of rules be used in ways to sort of quiet the speech of employees so they can become more like units of production. And um, I think that's the real fear here is, is, isn't about the poppies and it isn't about, about the BLM stickers, but it's about making sure that employees understand that their place is, is under the rule of the, of the, of the uh, corporation. The other thing that's interesting is to see places like Whole Foods who branded themselves on sort of greenwashing, um, you know, sort of corporate, corporate operations while they don't let their employees unionize um you know they're very happy to to, to um you know uh pay for a pride float or you know any of these types of things there are good things on the aggregate but they want that that positive uh representation of their brand but in a very metered way um i was disappointed to see how people have spoke out about that but they haven't spoke out about the fact that they're going to um define a um definition of anti-Semitism that's going to squelch any sort of activism around uh, Palestinian rights in Ontario that happened just recently. Uh, we're not hearing people talk about that, but, you know, go on, wear the flower. Yeah, we're also not talking, and I shout out here for the greatest uh, humanitarian crisis right now happening in Yemen, and the fact that we're selling the South's arms as Canadians, we're complicit in the literal murder of uh, tens of thousands of children. And so I just want to shout that out um, uh, as we're uh, about things that the government could do and should act quickly on. Um, so this has been fantastic. Thank you both very, very much. Um, Andre Domiz, um, again, uh, uh, assistant editor at McLean's journalist, um, also uh, in law and David Slavic uh, in law, um, former strategist of the Democratic Party, um, now a Canadian living in Newfoundland, amazing. Um, and uh, we have had our law and disorder panel please uh, keep your your questions and your comments coming i love them and i will always respond uh and do stay tuned and do give generously to the last alternative radio station left in the gta and that is ciet 89.5 fm whether you're listening on podcast or listening on uh the radio either way um support it uh and till next time listen get active and thank you very much, Andre, and thank you very much, David. And we're still not quite with a Biden government, but of course that's gonna happen. So mm -hmm. stay safe out there. Bye guys.